Good morning. It's good to see each one of you here. Uh, <clears throat> like John said, you know, last week was pretty rough. Didn't have a lot of people here, you know, and so with, with COVID in full swing, it's been kind of tough. Um, so we just need to keep our, our family in prayer for this, this whole situation that's taking place here. But um, I want to begin this morning by starting a new series. It's a, it's a stewardship series, and I entitled it Spend Little, Save Some, Share Much. Kind of has a little ring to it there. Spend little, save some, share much. And so I wanted to just share some quotes that I found that I thought were pretty interesting on the whole concept of stewardship. Uh, J.L. Kraft, who was with the Kraft Cheese Corporation, said this. He said, the only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. I thought that was pretty interesting. I know that you've probably heard this statement before, but Jim Elliott, who was a missionary who was killed um, on, on the job there, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What, what a great statement that is. Uh, Oswald Chambers wrote this. He says, when Christ, with Christ, I mean, with Christ, it is not how much we give, but what we do not give, that is the real test. I thought that was pretty interesting too. F.B. Meyer said, He is the richest man in the esteem of the world who has gotten the most, but he is the richest man in the esteem of heaven who has given the most. I, I like that one too. That was, that was very good. Um, let me just, I'll just share a few more here. Says, um, David Livingstone said this. He said, I place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interest of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by giving or keeping it, I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. And probably one of my favorite ones is what Winston Churchill said. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. That's a, that's a good statement. Larry Burkett made this statement. He said, the average Christian pays more in interest than he gives to the Lord's work. In a church of 100 families, 37 families will give nothing. Um, some of these are, are unknowns. Um, one of them says, what we often wait for God to do for us, he wants to do through us. He wants to do through us. God promises to meet all your needs, not all your greeds. <laughs> that, was, that was a pretty good one. Um, our life is to be like a river, not a reservoir. I, th I thought that was a good one. Don't you guys think? I mean, these are pretty good. W one that is very true is that we cannot outgive God. And I like this one too. I shovel out, God shovels in. The only difference is, is his shovel's bigger than mine. 
Isn't that true? That is so true. I, I love that. I love that statement. And then a, a couple more here. Stewardship is partnership with God. Stewardship begins with love, not giving. The happiest people on earth are the people who have discovered the joy of giving, and I truly believe that. And then um, another unknown here, but I wanted to share it. Often those who have trouble giving God 10% don't have a problem giving 18% to MasterCard. (laughs) That is so true. What I... What I spent, I had. What I saved, I lost. What I gave, I have. I like that. There was a story about this wealthy man who laid on his deathbed, and he spoke with three of his friends, a doctor, a professor, and a preacher. Now, you know there's going to be a punchline to the end of that. There always is, it seems like it. So he said... I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to take it with me when he died. So I'm giving each of you $100,000 in an envelope. And after I die, before they close my casket, I want each of you to put that money in the casket with me. Sure enough, this man died. And at his funeral, the three friends each stopped by the open casket and they put an envelope into his casket. Well, later that day, they were talking about their friend and his unusual request. And then the doctor spoke up. He was the first one to speak. And he said, guys, I I just need to get this off my chest. We all know that money wasn't going to do any good in the ground. And the hospital was completing a new children's wing. So I took 50,000 of the cash and I gave it to the cause. I put the other 50 in the casket. Well... As long as we're confessing, the professor said, you're right. There, there really is no reason to put that money in the ground. So I donated 70000 to the university library. And they both were really kind of looking expectantly at the preacher. And of course, he said to them, I am ashamed of you both. Our friend trusted us. That's why I put a check for the whole $100,000 in the casket. <laughs> Let's see that check bounce. (laughs) This morning and for the next couple weeks, actually three weeks in total, I want to talk to you about something that isn't easy to ever talk about, and that's money. It really isn't easy to talk about it. Um, We have a lot of names for money. We call it cash. We call it greenbacks. We call it the dough. We call it the loot. We call it the moolah. You know, the Benjamins, the almighty dollar, you know, but a lot of us, we're just not comfortable talking about money, especially when it comes to church and and stewardship, financial accountability or responsibility aren't always easy to approach. It's really, it's really tough. You know, it, it's not, it's not an easy subject to approach. But here's the reality of it all, folks. The Bible has a lot to say about money. I mean, a tremendous amount. There are thousands of verses in the Bible about wealth and finances. I mean, literally thousands of verses. As a matter of fact, did you know that one out of every six verses in the gospel is about material possessions? 
One out of every six verses. Did you know that over half of Jesus' parables are about money or possessions? Did you know Jesus talked more about money than he did about the subject of heaven or hell or temptation or sin or salvation? He talked more about money than he did about any of those subjects. I thought that was pretty interesting. Clearly, money is a big deal to God. Why is that? Why do you think money is a big deal to God? I think it's because we spend our lives wrapped up in it, don't we? We spend our lives wrapped up in it. We spend so much money or we we spend so much of our time either trying to make money, spend money, thinking about money, worrying about money, using money, enjoying money, wishing we had more money. We spend our lives on that. And so God knew money would be a big deal to us, and so it's a big deal to him in the Bible. It really is a big deal. Unfortunately, in church, a lot of times we tend to think a sermon on money is just a plea for for more giving, you know, guilt-driven appeal for you to open up your checkbooks. And that's not why I'm up here this morning. I'm not here to, to guilt you into anything. What I'm up here to do is to help you see how we really need to see money in the place that it plays in our lives. That's what I'm here to do. For Jesus, though, teaching about money was an essential preparation for a godly life. That's what it's all about. You know, like the old saying goes, and this is true, I've said this before, and I'm sure you've probably said it too. Show me your checkbook, and I'll show you what's important to you. I would fear for you to look at my checkbook. Number one, it's, it's, it's never been balanced ever since I've had it. But to see some of the things that I've purchased, you would probably laugh. But but it's it, that's so true. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you what's important to you. In a sense, your checkbook is a little window into your soul. Few things test your faith or your maturity more accurately than how you manage your money. How you manage your money. In fact, I believe how you handle your money is the litmus test. You ever hear of the litmus test? Uh, the, the, the proof of or the, or, or the way to measure spiritual maturity. That's what I believe. Why? Because Jesus said this. He said in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, he said, And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches of heaven? That's what he tells us. In other words... God is watching me to see how I handle my wealth. However much or however little I have, he's watching me in this life, how I manage it and what I do with it on earth. He's watching me. If God can't trust me with material wealth such as money or possessions here on earth, then he won't be able to trust me with true spiritual riches in eternity It's a matter of stewardship. 
That's what it is. It's a matter of stewardship. Stewardship is just an old English word for the, for the word management. Um, or a manager of what God has blessed us with. That's what stewardship is really all about. It's just being a manager, being a good manager of what he gives you. The number one key when it comes to money is acknowledging that everything we have belongs to God. That's what I'm here to tell you, folks. That, that's what I'm here. We're simply called to manage God's money. Psalm 24, verse 1, this is what it says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Even my children don't belong to me. They belong to God. Even my grandchildren belong to him. Not just my finances, not just my possessions, but my children, my wife. Everything belongs to him. That includes whatever you have in your wallet or your purse or your bank account as well. God is the owner, period. A lot of Christians think that they are managing money God's way because they give a tithe to the church. But see, what we often forget, guys, is this, is that that other 90% that we don't give to the church, that still belongs to God. <laughs> so so we need to we need to manage all of God's money well and to do it God's way not just that 10% or 15% whatever you give or 20 you know it's it's all 100% of it we need to manage it well now as far as I can tell there are only three things that we can do with money besides burning it or losing it and I don't recommend you burn it I mean you have to be filthy rich I've known filthy rich people who would use this as kindling to start their fire that's pretty sad isn't it Alms for the poor, you know. <laughs> don't don't burn that money. But there's only three things that you can do with it. We can spend it, we can save it, or we can share it. Those are the only three options. I like the old saying. I just shared it with you a little bit ago. What I spent, I had. What I saved, I lost. What I gave or shared, that's what I truly have. Wow. So today and for the next two weeks after this, I, I want to talk about how we can spend and save and, and share God's money God's way. And so to get us started this morning, I think I, I want to share a really great example in the Bible of how not to spend your money. And it's found in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. What a great example of how not to spend your money. You know, the story is, is found in Luke chapter 15, and it's, it's one of the more familiar stories in the Bible. Um, and I'm sure that, that many of you have read it many times before. I'm sure you have. You know, so this morning I want to look at this story from a financial perspective, because like many of Jesus' parables, this story has a lot to say about how we spend our money. It really does. This parable centers around a young man who learned lessons on sinful spending, and, and he learned lessons the hard way, didn't he? He really did. Um, we will also highlight some of the mistakes that he made in hopes that we don't repeat those mistakes. But I also want to point out a few things that that young man did right. 
because he did, he did a couple things right. So the first thing that the prodigal son did was he spent his money selfishly. That's the first thing he spent selfishly. You know, Jesus begins this parable by saying this. Notice what he says. Jesus continued, there was a, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This self-centered son, I think, is a prime example of the discontentment and the entitlement that seems to be running rampant in our own culture today. I truly believe that. I was never so angry, and I, I should probably say this, but I was never so angry with my brother than the day that he said, when my mom sold her home, and she was living with one of my one of my my sister, and he said that he expected to get a share of that inheritance. And I said to him, right to his face, I said to him, you know what? That money is hers, and she chooses to spend it the way she wants to spend it. You leave it alone. It just it just angered me. But see, that's that entitlement attitude, and I don't like it. In ancient times, it wasn't completely unheard of for a son to request his inheritance prior to his parents' passing. But it wasn't very loving either, you know? In fact, it was considered very shameful. You know, it was as if he was telling his dad, his father, I wish that you would just hurry up and die. That's what he was basically saying to him. You know, God God wants us to love people and use money, not the other way around, folks. And you know that, don't you? God wants us to love people and use money, not the other way around. You know, this young man had it backwards. Unfortunately, he's not the only one. In his book, Balancing the Tightrope, has anybody ever read the book Balancing the Tightrope with, um, with Barry Powell? Did anybody ever read that? Barry Powell relates that in a survey of over 200,000 college freshmen, 76% listed financial prosperity as the most important goal of their lives. Our consumer-driven culture breeds this mentality, doesn't it? We're living, I think, in the most marketed-to-cultural age in history. The average American sees over 3,000 advertisements a day. Can you imagine, can your mind just process all that, that 3,000 advertisements a day? A child born today will likely see over 1 million commercials before they turn 20. That's a lot of commercials. What's the purpose of that? The the purpose of all this marketing in our culture is, is driven home by two points. Number one is this, you need what we're selling, and number two, you need it now. (laughs) I want it, I want it right now. You know, we're okay with that, aren't we? You know, you need what I'm selling, and and you need it right now, because we love stuff. We love stuff. Do you have Amazon Prime? Sometimes you can have that stuff within the same day that you order it. My, my next door neighbor, Amazon Prime, is at their house every single day. 
That's why we don't have any malls anymore. Because of Amazon Prime, and I'm sorry, because I know someone works for Amazon Prime, but <laughs> or Amazon anyway. But that's why we don't have malls anymore, because people can order it online. They don't have to go into the store and be bothered by that. And they can have it delivered right to their house, and sometimes they can have it delivered in the same day. The Bible calls it covetedness. And God thought it was serious enough to make it one of the Ten Commandments. Someone once said this, The only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they have never offered it an elephant with 0% down and $99 a month. How true do you think that is? I think that that's very true. How many of you would own an elephant if they... (laughs) I knew at least one of you would hold your hands up. Yeah, If they offered it for 0% down and $99 a month, hey, I'll take one. Howard Hughes was once the richest man in America. His net worth adjusted for inflation was probably around $43 billion. Someone once asked the billionaire, how much is enough? And Howard Hughes answered in this way, just a little more. Just a little more. The Bible even says that. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money never has enough. Boy, the Bible is so right on, isn't it? I mean, it is just right on. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. I would say that that scripture right there hits the nail right on the head, doesn't it? (laughs) Absolutely does. Jesus also warned us about greed. Notice what he says there. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he tells us. In other words, your value is not determined by your valuables. Praise the Lord. Your self-worth is not based on your net worth. And some of you are probably, man, Praise the Lord for that. The most important things in life are not things. And Jesus put it in the form of a question when he asked this question in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Guys, your soul is so much more important than than any valuable thing that you own. If we're ever going to spend God's money God's way, we need to get over this materialistic love of stuff. And we need to learn to be content with what God has sent to us. Money does not equal happiness. And stuff never satisfies. Just ask Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was one of the most miserable people in the world. And he had $43 billion. And so we need to really be careful. The second thing that the prodigal son did was he spent his money carelessly. As the story continues, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 15, verse 13. He says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He squandered his wealth. You know, this young man left home with a boatload of cash. He had a boatload of cash. 
If he was smart, he could have easily lived on that money for the rest of his life. Easily could have. Yet, somehow, I don't know, somehow he managed to spend, maybe he bought a lot of elephants, I don't know. (laughs) Somehow, he managed to spend every penny he had thanks to a sinful and careless lifestyle. Every penny he had. Unfortunately, he's not the only one. According to a survey released by Bankrate.com, 76% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. In other words, three quarters of us are spending every penny that we make. That's pretty sad. In fact, in our more honest moments, I think many of us would probably be like former PGA golfer Doug Sanders. Anybody know who Doug Sanders is? He's a golfer. And he was on the PGA Tour. And he talked about his flamboyant lifestyle. And he said this. This is pretty funny, actually. He said, I'm working as hard as I can to get my life and my cash to run out at the same time. <laughs> you know, what's, what's wrong with these people? You know, He says, I figure... If I can die right after lunch next Tuesday, I'll have it just about right. (laughs) What's going on there? You know, the the Bible has something to say about that. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20 says, Wise people live in wealth and luxury, but stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Now, I don't want to call people stupid. How many of you have ever done something not so smart with zeros at the end of it? We don't want God calling us mindless, do we? We don't want God to look at us that way. That means we need to learn to live within our means. We need to learn to live within our means. We don't need to keep up with the Joneses. It means learning to tell ourselves no. I'm not going to buy that. No, I'm not going to do that. Rick Warren, he's the, he's the preacher at Saddleback. Put it this way. He says, without self-control, our yearning capacity will always exceed our earning capacity. That's what he tells us. And, I, and I, he's so right. And so like most of us, the prodigal son didn't have a money problem What he had was he had a spending problem. That's what he had. He had had a lack of self-control. You know, what this son really needed was a budget. You know, a spending plan that that he could stick to. And, And the same is true for us as well. How many of you have a budget? I hope that most of you do, if not all of you. We need to have a budget you know, it, it, that, that is so important to have a budget, a spending plan. You know, regardless of whether you make minimum wage or you make a six-figure salary, if you're spending every single penny you have, then you don't have anything left over for sharing or saving. Does that make sense? You, you, just, you just don't have any more left over. It's all about you. There's nothing left over for sharing or saving or saving or sharing, however you want to look at it. 
And as we're about to see, that is a big deal. That's a, that's a big problem. The third point here, the third thing that the prodigal son did was he, he spent short-sightedly. Notice what it says there. Jesus continues the story. In verse 14, he says, After he had spent everything, he had nothing left. There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. The, the, the New Living Translation shares that, says that he began to starve. He began to starve. You know, you're all familiar with Murphy's Law, right? Where whatever can go wrong is going to go wrong. And this is what happens. Well, things just really went wrong. And this kid was totally unprepared for this. Unfortunately, many of us are in the same boat. Online lender CashNet USA said this. Said that 22% of the 1,000 people that it recently surveyed had less than $100 in their savings to cover an emergency. While 46% had less than $800. That's not good. Dave Ramsey's goal for each of us is to have at least three to six months saved, and preferably six months saved for emergencies. Because you know what he said? He said, life happens. Cars break down. People get laid off. You know, um, medical emergencies pop up unannounced. And if we don't plan for those financial emergencies, what can happen is they can quickly turn into financial crises or financial nightmares for us. I've had that happen. I've had that happen. And I'm sure you've probably had it too. The picture we need to notice that is a key symptom of stuffitis or or covetedness is short-sightedness, where we can only see what's right in front of us and we're blind to the long-term consequences. That's why... We'd rather use a credit card to buy something today and end up paying interest on it for months rather than save up for it and pay cash for it. You know, think about that for a moment. Just think about that. Think about all the money that we pay in interest on things that that could be going to the Lord's work. The more money you pay on interest for stuff that you have, the less you have to share or to, to save. And that's why... For myself, I try to pay cash for everything. Now, some of the bigger things I can't, but I try to pay cash for as much as possible. I try to avoid credit cards like the plague. But because of his selfish, careless, short-sighted approach to spending, this prodigal son absolutely hit rock bottom. You know, he, he wasn't just broke. He, he was looking at the pig slop and thinking to himself, that looks pretty yummy. <laughs> That's what he said. Notice what he says there. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. They had no mercy on him. No, nothing. He's so broke that the bank is about to repossess his cardboard box. He is so broke that he goes to KFC to lick other people's fingers. That's how broke he is. But his story isn't over with. 
even though he was selfish, careless, short-sighted, after he hit rock bottom, he did a couple things right. He did a couple things right. The first thing that he did was he got a job. Notice what Jesus says there. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. I don't know if you're picking up on the severity of this, but you must understand how degrading this job was for a young Jewish man. Being, being a farmhand is hard work to begin with. You know, it's, it's up every day at the crack of dawn. It's a demanding job kind of job. So that, that tells us that this young man was willing to work hard. He was willing to get his hands dirty. But there's another dimension that you need to, to notice here in this, in this whole situation right here. To this situation, because of Jewish law, in Jewish law, it was considered unclean to be touching pigs. You can't even touch a, if a Jewish person even touched a pig, he was considered unclean and couldn't even, wasn't even allowed to come in to the temple for worship at all. He couldn't do any of that. Not a bit. So here's this young Jewish kid doing what he considered the lowliest job on earth. And not only did he take this job, but notice what he said there. He, so he went and hired himself out. He, he convinced, he convinced this man, this, this farmer to hire him. He haggled with him. He argued with him to get that job. He probably begged and he pleaded for this job. He didn't hold out for anything better. You know, you've heard that, you know, I'm, I'm just holding out for, for a better job. Well, he didn't hold out for anything. And that's important because I think many young people today would have starved to death before taking that job. And the longest I ever went without a job was five months. That was a hard time in my life. And it was when I was older. I did go back to school, though. I went back and I, I, I earned my first unit of CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. And I worked without pay for five months. I did 30 hours of clinical work at the hospital. I was there 30 hours a day. I visited over 750 patients. Our class meetings were, were anywhere from five to eight hours long. You know, and then I had homework, homework galore. I read thousands of pages of stuff that I had to do for, for my work. I had to write so many different papers. When we, when I came down to it, I figured out that it was about 50 hours a week that I was doing for this class, and I did that for five months. You know, my first job after that weekend, I was done with that class. Um, was I became the manager or the maintenance guy for Camp Epicacica um, for $15 an hour. Some people at McDonald's are making more than that. But that's what I was willing to do. This, you know, I kept saying, this is not what I went to Bible college for, but I'm so thankful to have a job and a paycheck. And besides, camp is one of my favorite places in all the world. I love camp. And so I got to be there for the whole summer. But God took care of us. And I gave that job my all. And he prepared me for other things to come. But here's the point. 
that I'm trying to make. When you're in financial trouble, you have to be willing to work. You have to be willing to work. Even when I didn't have a job, I went to school and I worked 50 hours a week. And it was not easy. You know, I, I, it took my ministry skills even a step beyond that because when I was in the ministry, 95 to 99% of the people that I visited in the hospital were people that I knew. Doing this CPE stuff, 99% of the people that I visited in the hospital were people that I didn't know. And I visited people from all different kinds of backgrounds, from a Satanist to, to a Jew to, to Muslims. I visited everybody. It wasn't easy. Sometimes you may have to take a job that you don't like. Or, or maybe you even have to get a second job that you don't like for a while because you've got to make ends meet. But you do what you have to do, and I believe that God rewards hard work. The Bible says this, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Boy, is that true. But the second thing that the young man did was that he came up with a plan. As the story continues, Jesus says this about him, the prodigal son. He says, when he came to his senses... He finally came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He goes, I will set out. He's making the plan. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Wow. There are two parts to his plan. One was returning to his father in repentance, and two was seeking a better paying job. He wanted a better paying job. I only want to focus on the first part. You know, if you're in financial trouble, there is nothing better that you can do than to go to your father with, with a broken and contrite heart and spirit and to ask him for help. If you need that, go to him. You know, as I said before, there are literally thousands of verses in the Bible about wealth and finances. It teaches extremely simple principles about handling God's money God's way. And believe it or not, those principles actually work. They really do. If, if we'll read what God says about money and actually apply it to our, our spending habits, I believe what will happen is it will transform our lives, not to mention it will transform our bank accounts. I guarantee you, the Bible says the plans of the diligent lead to profit, for surely as haste leads to poverty. In other words, if you work hard and stick to a smart spending plan, you can actually win with money. You can. So in closing this morning, when it comes to spending money God's way, I think the prodigal son is a good example of both what not to do and maybe what to do. 
He does share some good things in there. Unlike the prodigal son, we don't want to spend selfishly, carelessly, short-sightedly. We don't want to do that. But like the son, but like him, we do want to work hard and we want to turn to our father for help. We need to turn to him for help. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about saving God's money, God's way. In the meantime, if you are struggling financially, I want to encourage you to, first of all, to seek out God in prayer. Just seek him out. Tell him all about your struggles and surrender your finances to him. That's what I want you to do. Afterwards, you need to find a plan that works for you if you don't have a plan. The first thing that I would say to you is to do this. Read the Bible. Look up all the scriptures that talk about finances. Read what they have to say. And then I suggest that you look up this group called Financial Peace University. Uh, Dave Ramsey, they are excellent. Great, great program. I would ask you to do that. It will help you to develop a spending plan, a saving plan, and a sharing plan that will help you get out of debt if you're in debt. Remember, everything that we have, not just that 10% that we give at church belongs to God. Everything that we have belongs to him. And he asked each of us to be good stewards of what he has blessed us with. So as the band works their way up this morning, I want to encourage you that if you don't have that, that you would seek that out and that you would desire to want to do things God's way because that's the way that you're going to prosper. That's what he wants for each one of us.